In January 1692, nine-year-old Elizabeth Paris, the daughter of Salem Village's pastor Samuel Paris, and his 11-year-old niece Abigail Williams began experiencing strange and unexplainable fits of rage. Their bodies became contorted, they screamed, and threw objects across rooms and at people trying to help them. Although their families sought medical treatment, the local doctor, William Griggs, could find no physical explanation for these attacks. Rather, he posited the girls' fits were caused by more sinister and supernatural forces, and that the girls had been bewitched by servants of Satan. Shortly thereafter, several other young girls began experiencing similar symptoms. The village authorities began an investigation into the bewitching and convinced the girls to name those they felt responsible for the supernatural attacks. The girls identified three women, including Tituba, the Paris' Caribbean slave, Sarah Osborne, a poor elderly woman, and Sarah Good, a homeless woman, and accused them of being witches in league with the devil. The accused women were brought in front of the magistrates while the girls screamed and writhed in a courtroom spectacle. Good and Osborne maintained their innocence, but Tituba confessed, seemingly believing she could save her own life by implicating others. Tituba told the authorities that she belonged to a coven of witches, who were all doing the devil's bidding by attacking the young girls. Despite the lack of any substantial or empirical evidence, all three women were imprisoned. Now, with the belief that they were surrounded and under attack by witches, several other people, primarily women, were accused of witchcraft. By May 1692, there were so many cases that the governor, William Phipps, created a special court of Oyer and Terminer, solely to try those accused of being witches. The first witch to be tried was an elderly woman named Bridget Bishop. Although she claimed her innocence, she was known in the village to be a gossip and believed to be sexually promiscuous. She was ultimately convicted of witchcraft and was the first person to be hanged during the witch trials in June 1692. After her execution, the minister, Cotton Mather, implored the court to disallow spectral evidence or evidence based on the dreams and visions of the accusers. The court, however, ignored Minister Mather and in July executed another five people suspected of witchcraft. Five more so-called witches were put to death in August and another eight in September. In addition to the execution, another seven accused witches died in jail and one elderly man was crushed to death by large stones placed on him in an attempt to coerce him to confess. In fact, there were several tests designed to identify witches. In the swimming test, suspects were bound and then thrown into a body of water. It was believed innocent people would sink, but witches would float, as it was believed they had renounced baptism, and as a result, the water would reject them. In another test, the accused was required to speak scripture or recite the Lord's Prayer. Any stumble or stutter was an indication the person was in league with the devil. However, these tests were not considered foolproof, and in the famous case of George Burroughs, he flawlessly recited the Lord's Prayer from the gallows. He was executed anyway, as the fearful people believed it was simply a devil's trick. Witches were also believed to have marks on their bodies called devil's marks. It was believed the devil marked his followers with an unsightly blemish, or even an extra nipple, which could be used to suckle their helper animals, primarily dogs. However, any physical mark or imperfection could be interpreted as this devil's mark, 
and as such, it was rare that an accused passed the test. And these are just a few of the methods used to identify witches. Several others were included in the Malleus Maleficarum, a book written by two German Dominicans in 1486, which was a guide on how to hunt, interrogate, and identify witches. For more than 100 years, this book sold more copies than any book in Europe other than the Bible. Witchcraft was not unique to the colonies, as witch hunts had been occurring in Europe since the mid-1400s. In fact, between 1500 and 1660, approximately 80,000 suspected witches had been put to death in Europe. In early October 1692, Minister Mather's son and president of Harvard, Increase Mather, echoed his father's plea that the court not allow spectral evidence. Governor Phipps, this time, heeded the Mather's advice, coincidentally at the same time his own wife had been accused of being a witch. He dissolved the court of Oyer and Terminer that same month. However, trials continued, but far less frequently. By May 1693, Governor Phipps released those who remained in prison and pardoned those convicted of witchcraft. By the end, approximately 150 people were accused of being witches. 18 were put to death, 7 died in prison, and 1 died of torture. This episode is about the Salem Witch Trials. Welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono. And Dr. David Morelos. David, it's my favorite holiday coming up. Yeah? I love Halloween. And we couldn't let Halloween pass without talking about some spooky subject. And what better subject than the Salem Witch Trials? Yeah, I agree. So, you know, although witches tend to be what people are most kind of afraid of when we talk about the witch trials, the witchcraft. What I'm most afraid of is the hysteria that led so many people to be tortured and executed simply because someone accused them of something with little to no proof. I think that's the much bigger threat. It is so chilling to me. So, you know, as we were researching this subject, it was really interesting to me. I had no idea about kind of the European history of witch hunts um, that predated the hysteria that happened in the U.S. colonies. Right. There was a lot about the European witch trials that were going on as a precursor to what happened in Salem, Massachusetts. Historians have a lot of controversial totals, and they total it from anywhere from 40,000 to 100,000 people executed in Western Europe. Wow. I know that I said like 80,000 
in the intro, which is kind of in the middle, but it could have been even more than that is what, is what you found. Sure. They wow. S- they think that three times that amount were accused in Germany, France, the Netherlands, Switzerland, all of which were parts of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. The bulk of the executions were between 1580 and 1650. So we're still a good 40 some odd years before the Salem Rich Trials. Mm-hmm. In 1306 to 1315, the Catholic Church tried to eliminate the Knights Templar. And I thought that this was sort of an interesting sort of parallel or precursor to what was going on with the witch hunts that would come later. I'll get back to that in a second. In the 1340s, we also had the Black Death. Oh, the plague. The plague. Yeah. Sure. So there was a tremendous amount of fear going on. In 1486, we had the Malleus Maleficarum, or the Hammer of Witches, which was published. In 1500 to 1560, witchcraft trials and Protestantism was rising rapidly. In 1542, England passed the Witchcraft Act. In 1560 through 1570, witch hunts were occurring. There was a big wave of witch hunts in southern Germany. 1610 to 1630, widely regarded as the period of time with the greatest amount of witchcraft cases and trials in Europe. In the 1640s, England saw a large number of witch trials. 1660, another wave caught in in Germany, this time in the northern part. 1682 was when Mary Trembles and Susanna Edward were hanged in England. These were the last two witch hangings in England. Again, a full 10 years before... This would make its way across the Atlantic into Salem and into the new colonies. So in 1736, the English Witchcraft Act was repealed. In 1755, Austria ended witch trials. And in 1768, Hungary ended witch trials as well. Another interesting fact that I found out while we were doing this research was that in 2011, Amna bint Abdul Halim Nassar, was beheaded in Saudi Arabia for being accused of practicing witchcraft. So witch hunts still occur even to this day. It seems that way. Wow. Yes. Interesting. Depending on where you are. So the Salem witch trials and executions, we're talking about the years of 1692 through 1693. Just like you said, 150 were accused, 19 were hanged, and one was crushed to death. So to start off, I wanted to thank the historian Susanna Lipscomb for the great documentary you and I watched on the British witch hunts in the 17th century that's currently on Netflix. That was really interesting. It's two parts, and they talk both about um, Scotland and England, right? Sure, and we'll definitely have a link to that because it is a fascinating documentary, and I thought it was really well done. It was. So I want to say that I didn't know as much about the witch trials of Salem, and especially the witch trials in Europe as I thought I did. I had no idea that this phenomenon was so widespread across Western Europe before making its way across the Atlantic to the British colony in Massachusetts. So that documentary was enlightening, at least so far as Puritan thought and the larger umbrella of Protestantism that had been slowly challenging the control of the Holy Roman Empire in Europe. At any rate, you know, tracing the history of the witch hunts through Europe and then Salem shed some light on the political and social atmosphere at the time, which was in chaos in a lot of places. For instance, in England, a civil war was brewing between those who were loyal to the monarchy versus those who favored a parliamentary style of government. This led to the eventual deposing of King Charles I, who was executed in 1649, and the rise to power by a Calvinist named Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell died in 1658, and his son was not able to hold on to power. So this led to the restoration of Charles II, otherwise known as the Restoration, which began in 1660. 
So this is one example of the kind of social environment that was present in England at roughly the same time many of the witch trials were happening there. Across the pond, in the colony of Massachusetts some 30 years later in 1692, we had a number of colonists who were reeling from a war with the French in 1689, where the British were able to expand a great deal in the New World, but there were some serious and profound effects on the colonists who lived here, including smallpox, which was always a big threat, and constant attacks from Native Americans in the region as well. When our safety may feel under constant threat, there seems to be a desire to find scapegoats. We seem to need people to blame or on whom to project our sense of anxiety. You know, Jessica and I went to a local production of Cabaret last weekend. It was so good. Right. It was which so was, well done. Right. Great show. Which also explored this phenomena as the Nazi rise to power found some easy targets in homosexuals and in Jews to include countless others. We all know that dark part of European history. So it seems that in times where there is a great deal of uncertainty, we tend to search out those who will be easy targets for our collective anxiety. Blame them for what's wrong, whether it be political or social or religious in nature. Oftentimes, those who are blamed most readily happen to be those who are the easiest to target. In the case of the Salem witch hunts, those were often older or single women who were considered at the time on the margins of Puritan society. Some were widows, others spinsters, and whose existence often made it difficult for the passing down of inheritances onto male heirs. This is one of the theories put forth by historians, that many of the women were killed to pave the way for men to take possession of an inheritance that was being held by a woman as a way to protect, at the time, widows. Wow. So obviously, the issue of money has been, and always will be, it seems, at the crux of motivations for violence. This seems like an obvious answer. At the time, when fears and paranoia were rampant, it, it seems like removing undesirable and often disagreeable women, those whose utility to society had passed, would be accepted by those who wanted to get a hold of any money they might control from their dead husbands. So, a quick story. In my youth, I belonged to an organization called Demolay, which is basically an organization for young men to prep them to become Masons after their 21st birthday. You, you remember me telling you stories oh, about yeah, that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I grew up in this Masonic sort of organization, made a lot of friends there, had a lot of fun, and learned some good lessons as well. I always knew the story of Jacques de Molay, but never really understood it in the context of history until much later in my life. Again, we had an atmosphere of fear and paranoia being projected on an organization that was growing significantly in power and wealth. In this case, it was the Knights Templar, of whom Jacques de Molay was the last Grand Master before he was executed by the Catholic Church. The Knights Templar were accused of many things, such as devil worship, but in reality, it seemed that the wealth and the power they had amassed as a secret society was what most concerned the Catholic Church at the time. They were accused of heresy, hunted down, and executed. Jacques de Molay, Godfrey de Gonville, Hugh de Peral, and Guy of Laverne were all executed and considered martyrs because they never revealed the names of their fellow Knights Templars. So follow the money, right? I think that the witch trials, particularly the fact that they centered on women who were so easily victimized, adds another level of psychological projection here. Throughout history and in many cultures, we have always, it seems, had different ways that we have kept women, quote unquote, in line, so to speak. 
And often this is done through fear and violence. Finding endless ways to control women through the use of fear has been a favorite historical pastime for centuries. You and I have been watching the series The Handmaid's Tale, which was created by Margaret Atwood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, yeah, it's very popular. Yeah, sure. Um, which is sort of a cautionary tale of what happens when fear-mongering and projection taken to an extreme focuses on a particular population. In this case, again, women in general, but especially those who are still capable of having children. Even the women who are married in the, to the so-called commanders are forced into subservient roles. The realization of this, which causes the character Serena a great deal of internal conflict. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree. Her character's actually gotten kind of interesting. As it, it was. It was kind on. of one of those characters that you just love to hate at the beginning. And then um, because every person has dark and light, you start to see some of that light. And it really makes her character so much more complex. Agreed. Definitely. So historically, there seems to be a deep-seated fear of this ability women have to create life in the form of children. Obviously, they don't do this alone, but their role is significantly more involved as they carry a baby to term than risk their own lives to give birth. There seems to be a tremendous amount of physical and emotional power inherent in this ability, and historically, and unconsciously, I would argue, it scares the holy hell out of men. Now, let me clarify, this has to be looked at in a very large context. I wouldn't say that I fear Jessica because she can have children, but as an unconscious archetypal drive, I think there's something to be said for this sort of almost mystical power that women possess. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, so as a culture, we seek to control this power in any way we can. I think the Salem witch trials really brought forth the dichotomous view we often have of women as virgins or whores, or the another way I've heard it said is mothers or sluts. This speaks much more to the psychology of men, I would argue, who are simply externalizing their own issues about their masculinity, their desire to integrate their own anima, which is their feminine side, mm-hmm. and their fear of doing that yeah and i mean i feel like that was the um kind of the view of the puritans it seemed very black and white especially for women Absolutely. you know i mean they did one thing wrong or looked wrong at one person and they could be considered promiscuous or you know so it it is very interesting i think it's important to take into account the context at the time so that history was was really interesting, very very helpful in kind of shedding light on what that the social context was at the time as well. Yeah. So, you know, what I wanted to discuss are some of the theories about what was going on not with the witches, as I don't believe that any of them really were witches, but with the psyche of the accusers. So there are actually three main theories that I've come across to explain this hysteria that was occurring during the witch hunts. So the first is that people who were experiencing these fits were actually poisoned by something called ergot, which is also called St. Anthony's fire. It's a fungus that grows on grain, primarily rye, which is what they had available to them in Salem at the time. And when it's ingested, its effects are similar to LSD. So, little side note, it was called St. Anthony's Fire because the people who were suffering its effects were cured when they visited the Shrine of St. Anthony, which also happened to be in an ergot-free region of France. So, that's Ah. how it got its name, um, St. Anthony's Fire. And the other interesting thing about it is that 
It was also used medicinally to help with things like childbirth, but in smaller doses. That's not uncommon. It seems like all drugs that we have problems with today were originally invented for some sort of helpful purpose. Yeah, yeah, I think that Or that's... used for some sort of helpful purpose. Yeah, I think that's very common. So anyway, you would expect someone with ergot poisoning to experience convulsions, vomiting, numbness and tingling, the feeling of bugs crawling in or on the skin, which is called formication, in case you're wondering, and psychosis. Once the poison has run its course, residual symptoms remain. So while some of the symptoms associated with ergot poisoning are consistent with what the girls reported, you know, kind of those convulsions and kind of flailing and all of that, hallucinations, um, some of the things that they reported are actually not consistent with this type of poisoning. So the girls were described as having discrete episodes where they displayed a complete recovery after it passed. Additionally, as people were very familiar with ergot at the time, it was something that they knew about, they were aware of, they would have only eaten ergotized rye if there was nothing else to eat. So, you know, it would have been like they were going to starve or they were going to have to eat this ergotized rye. So historians that have actually looked back, they say there was no evidence to suggest that there was a food shortage at the time. So there would have been no reason for them to eat the rye that had this ergot growing on it. Also, if it were ergot poisoning, it would be expected that many more people would have experienced symptoms. And as I said, people were familiar with this type of poisoning, so they would have been able to identify the cause. You know, if a, a lot of people were falling ill with these symptoms, they could have easily said, oh, it must be this. It was something that they knew enough about. So although this was kind of the go-to theory for a period, it's actually pretty much been uh, disproved. So this idea that they were poisoned, probably not very likely. Okay. So what was it then? Another possibility is that it was something called a mass conversion disorder. And if you all remember, we spoke about conversion disorders in the episode about unexplained illnesses. But just as a reminder, conversion disorders occur when an unaddressed psychological issue gets expressed in a physical symptom or a cluster of symptoms. In conversion disorders, the individual is not making up the symptoms. They're not even, you know, aware that there's a psychological component to them. And they experience their symptoms as intensely as if there was like a genuine medical cause for it. So although full-blown conversion disorders are relatively rare and mass conversion disorders where several people experience similar conversion symptoms is even rarer, they can occur in societies that have experienced prolonged stress or trauma. And with regard to Salem in the late 1600s, there were several stressors occurring, as you mentioned. So they were just coming off the war with smallpox, and they were being attacked by neighboring Native communities. So additionally, you know, once the girls had these symptoms, they were really doted over by the people around them, by the authorities, and they were given extraordinary power once they began experiencing these fits. Mm. And so if you think about that, that may have actually served to reinforce the conversion symptoms, even if they weren't things that they were conscious of, you know, just getting that reinforcement for having this physical ailment 
could kind of increase the likelihood that they would persist. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that's another possibility that many have cited. And the third possibility is that the so-called victims were purposefully making up their symptoms, um, which would be akin to either a fictitious disorder where the person consciously fabricates symptoms because they like being in the sick role. And we kind of discussed that in the episode about Gypsy Rose, if you remember. Yeah. Um, or it can be malingering, where the person purposefully feigns symptoms in order to obtain some external incentive. And so this ex- explanation, I think, fits well with what you were talking about as far as them targeting individuals that they wanted to get rid of. So that would fit more with kind of this malingering or factitious disorder where people were saying, okay, oh, now I'm bewitched and it's this rival that is doing it. Uh, okay. And it's also possible that some of the bewitched actually used this as an opportunity to take down people they just didn't like as well. So it wasn't even necessarily that they stood to gain money from it, but it could have been somebody that wronged them at some point in the past. That had to happen at some point. Well, and that's another good point is that perhaps it was some sort of combination of things. You know, could it have been that the girls who initially experienced symptoms had been poisoned or, or ingested something that initially caused it? It's possible. Could it have been that some were experiencing a true conversion disorder and then other people kind of saw that that was being reinforced, saw the power that these people were given and then they purposefully started to feign their symptoms, certainly possible. So I think, you know, it it doesn't have to be just one of these explanations. It could be really a combination of things that was occurring. You would think so. In order to put that many people to death, it, it was probably more than just one thing. You know, it's also interesting to me as a forensic psychologist, you know, I spend a lot of time working with the courts. That's my job. And so it's interesting to me that there were issues related to evidence when they were hearing these cases in court. You know, even at that time, there was an acknowledgement that evidence needed to be present, number one, Mm -hmm. and that it needed to be reliable. So although it took some time for the public officials to get on board with this in Salem, and unfortunately, people lost their lives during that time, Eventually, reason prevailed, and it was no longer permissible to use dreams and visions as evidence. I think this is something that seems like a no-brainer to us in modern times. Like, nobody would go into court now and be like, well, I dreamt this person did this, so they did it. Right. Um, But, you know, we have to, again, consider the context, like you were saying. And, you know, at that time... Supernatural causes were considered not only to be legitimate, but also pervasive. They didn't have a lot of the same scientific knowledge that we have now. And so, you know, at the time, it would make sense that that would be something that people relied upon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, although it would be nice to believe that we've totally learned our lesson in this area and that we would never make this type of mistake again, guess what? Go ahead. We did. So do you remember in the 1980s, the McMartin trials? Yeah, amazing story. There was a really good movie that was done on it um, that had James Woods in it, where he played the attorney that represented the McMartins. We have to do an episode on that. But, you know, just as a little preview, 
hysteria returned in the 1980s. And this time it was about basically like satanic child abuse. And it's very interesting. So we will circle back around to that. But it's just a good reminder that we don't know everything and that we need to always remember to to pay attention to the lessons that we've learned previously. We can't forget history. So I think that it's really interesting. You brought up some really interesting points, particularly about the the way they the Puritans saw the world. And I really wanted to come back to that and hit on that before we wrapped up this episode because oh, yeah. I think that it's I think that it's really important to look at. So, you know, there were some other interesting things that were adding fuel to this fire and were creating a number of substantial changes in how people viewed the world the same time that the witch hunts were happening. So the most interesting, I think, is the publication of Principia Mathematica by Isaac Newton, which in 1687 was widely considered by historians as the first major work of the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. You talked about, you mentioned that. You mentioned reason and rational thinking. Yeah, and that that prior to that time, a lot of weight was put on kind of the mystical explanations for things. Sure. So what we're witnessing, particularly with figures like Sir Isaac Newton, is the birth of the modern era. This is the Enlightenment. This is the age of reason. This is when reason and rational thinking really started to come onto the scene as a paradigm shift in how we saw the world. So a lot was happening. In 1641, one of the other major Enlightenment thinkers, Rene Descartes, who we've chatted a little bit about in the past, um, published his major work in rationalist philosophy called Meditations on First Philosophy, which represented a major break from the Catholic Church and greatly influenced the work of Sir Isaac Newton later on. So rational thought, as it is more strictly defined, was seriously beginning to challenge the power of mythical religious belief. So from a spiral dynamics Ken Wilber angle, which is my favorite way of contextualizing these types of things, we have what would be the hold of blue consciousness suddenly being challenged by the more contemporary rational thinking, or what we would call orange consciousness. New ideas were taking hold in Western civilization that would completely change the way we see the world. And here in the British colonies, you have a group of very religious people facing death at any every turn from a number of places. Then add to that this impending assault on their mythic view of the world by the sword of reason. Anytime, it seems, we have a dominant worldview being threatened by a new emerging paradigm, we see a backlash of sorts as the older worldview fights against the new. I would argue that this was exactly what was happening in Salem and the colonies at the time. Their religious beliefs are what brought these settlers to the new world to begin with. And then there is this specter of the Enlightenment thinking looming in the background as rational thoughts slowly started to take over the mythic thinking of the highly religious types at the time. Before any major change takes place in the dominant worldview, however, there is always the death throes of the outgoing one. The witch hunt sort of represented this regression into the most rigid and unforgiving aspects of mythic blue thinking and the dominant power structures at the time, in this case, which were represented by Calvinism and Puritan thought. I would argue that unconsciously, the Puritans sort of felt that they were a dying breed and that their time was almost up. This generated a lot of fear and the need for convenient scapegoating, particularly of women, 
uh, especially those who were deemed eccentric or who lived on the margins of Puritan society. So in the end, I think the European and the Salem witch hunts represent a very powerful lesson of when we do not face our fear about the future and about change and the danger that this can represent. We must strive to be conscious of our collective fear so as to own our feelings rather than to project them onto others. So it was almost like they sort of knew that their whole perception of the world was coming to an end. Well, and and it's kind of interesting to me because the witch hunts in Europe had already ceased, right? Correct. So, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting that they clinged to, to that, even though it had already run its course in Europe. And there was still enough contact with Europe for them to have known that that was no longer occurring, right? I'm sure. I'm sure they knew what, what was going on in Europe at the time, even though, you know, information traveled much slower back then. But I'm sure that they knew, they had some sense of what was going on. And I think that as with the birth of modernism and the age of reason, I think that I would argue, and I didn't see this anywhere in the research that you and I did, but I would argue that that's probably one of the major reasons why witch hunts stopped was because with the age of reason, just like you had pointed out, there needed to be empirical evidence. We needed to see some sort of evidence that this was happening. And I think that as time went on, people being accused of witchcraft, the accusers were just simply not able to produce that kind of evidence. And it just didn't make any sense. And I think that's why it came to an end in Europe first. We had the sort of death throes of the old system of thinking and the old dominant power structures here in the colony of Salem before Enlightenment thinking really started to take hold. Well, and I also think that the timing was quite interesting, that it was once the governor's wife was accused of witchcraft, he was like, oh, we got to stop doing this. Oh, of course. You know, so so I think that that kind of played into it, too. But that just went to show, you know, people were thinking, well, I can accuse, potentially they were thinking, I can accuse my enemies of this. And it's a good way to take people down, forgetting that then anybody could be accused And with those tests that they had, quote unquote tests, to prove that somebody was a witch, there was they were going to find proof on pretty much any person. Yeah, I think that from where we sit today, we look for the most pragmatic reasons. And I think that in the research that you and I did, there were a number of theories that were put forth. Well, it was because they were eating you know, a particular fungus that made them hallucinate or, you know, follow the money. There was the whole issue of inheritance and needing to get rid of these women. So inheritances can be freed up and things like that. But I think that when you zoom out contextually, historically, you see basically this was the the final throes of a particular form of consciousness and how it was being slowly replaced by rational thinking and the modern era. Which, and for the most part, that has persisted. And, you know, as we talked about, there have been cases where this has kind of come back around and reared its ugly head again. And, you know, who would have thought in the 1980s that we would be regressing back to this type of consciousness, this type of thinking? Oh, the, that when we, just because we evolve out of a, a certain form of consciousness doesn't mean that that consciousness ceases to exist. It's still a part of us. And we regress back to certain forms of thinking and certain forms of consciousness, depending on the situation. 
So we'll probably get more into that uh, when we start talking about the McMartin trial, which is, again, a fascinating case of something like this. But the fact of the matter is, in that case, the court system worked. So now we want to know what you all think. I mean, do you have another theory about what was going on in Salem at the time? Do you believe there are really witches? Were there any real witches in Salem, even if there are witches? And what's your view of kind of this hysteria? Are there other places that you've seen it? You know, it'd be fascinating to hear what you guys think. We um, have definitely been getting a lot more emails and messages from our website and on Facebook. And so please keep those coming. We've gotten some really great ideas for future episodes. So We'll be um, doing some more of those topics coming up. And um, so please visit us at our website, psychologyafterdark.com. Visit us on Facebook at Psychology After Dark. And if you're enjoying our podcast, as always, please give us a five-star rating. We really appreciate that. And uh, let your friends know. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining. Thanks. The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica McCono. It was edited by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were Dubstep Slow Motion by Cool Loop and The Arrival by Liskis both provided by Gemendo.